Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to talk about our boutique all-meetings event, Dealmakers East, happening at the Ritz-Carlton South Beach on February 7th and 8th. Dealmakers East is all about meetings. There are no keynotes, no panels. It is 100% focused on hand-curated meetings. Whether you are looking to meet fintech CEOs, bankers, or investors, we have you covered. Our Dealmakers events have consistently been our highest-rated events, so go to fintechnexus.com to find out more and register. Today on the show, we are talking about fighting fraud. I'm delighted to welcome the CEO and founder of Arcos Labs, Kevin Goschalk, to the show. And we are going to talk about the different ways that fraudsters are operating today, how they are evolving, how they're getting smarter, and then this new concept of of like cyber crime as a service and how that has changed the game and what it means for fintechs. And so we talk about the different types of fraud that we're seeing, how that fintechs should be addressing it. And we talk about some of the, of the ways that Arcos Labs is able to combat some of the fraudsters. We talk about the friction between a good user experience and solid uh, anti-fraud measures. We also talk about what it's going to look like in the future, where the next wave of attacks may be coming from. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Peter. Good to be on. Great to have you on. So let's start with giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I know, uh, like me, you are from the land down under. So why don't you tell us a little bit of the background and what brought you initially to this country? So I'm a, kind of an engineer by trade, pretty strong gamer as well. So that's that's kind of where I started my life, playing video games and, and loving technology. I actually studied at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. I studied a Bachelor of Games in Interactive Media. It's kind of huh. a very left field considering I now run a security company. But uh, yeah, there's a few things I did that were very different from games i would say so the first thing i did out of um out of university was i helped a uh, research study looking for early markers in diabetes of all mm. things so i actually helped build technology which will let them map nerves in the eye and it turns out at 500 times magnification which is quite a large magnification i would say the nerves actually are really good indications of whether a patient has diabetes or not so if you have a healthy nerve system and don't have diabetes the nerves all kind of whirl together like it's really it's very distinct it's very obvious you can see it clean it clear as day but if someone has diabetes they're all broken up and actually don't converge as well so just looking at the eye you can actually tell the difference between someone with diabetes and without it and that technique works two years earlier than traditional blood pricks and other techniques that they use so that study was looking for early markers for diabetes and they were trying to figure out like how do we 
build software or some way to map this? Because the problem with putting a camera on someone's eye, you need to kind of take photos of like a very large portion of the eye before you can build the map. Mm-hmm. And people are very twitchy with their eyes. And if someone twitches their eye at 500 times magnification somewhere else in the universe, basically. So I kind of built a technique using kind of game technology and interactive software that let us map the eyes. And then I wrote software that let them automatically stitch the photography together. So we used some um, computer vision and machine learning software that did that. So I did that for about two years. So I built the pioneering technique that they did a then seven-year clinical trial on. And they now actually use that software in the UK to help diagnose folks. So that was uh, kind of a small contribution to health. After that, and actually in sequence to that, I was working on a scholarship project with the Endeavor Foundation, which is a large not-for-profit in Australia for people with intellectual disabilities. And they wanted to kind of get something that got people up and active. So again, kind of back to my game design roots and kind of pairing that with interactive media. So like tangible media, like stuff that you think, like levers and cogs and stuff you can pull that makes something happen. Mm-hmm. I kind of built this prototype system, got a $5,000 scholarship, which gave me some money to buy some stuff from the hardware store and the electronic store and stuff to kind of jerry-rig something together. And we, we built this kind of two by three meter interactive floor. So it was like a giant iPad on the, on the ground. And, the way that I made it actually work is I got a bunch of sensors you put under your mat. So when you step on the mat, it would trigger the house alarm, like this is back before cameras and stuff for a thing. And got 60 of those, wired them in an array. And wherever you would step, it would basically act like a giant button. So I would know you're stepping in this giant two by three meter surface. And I would put a projector onto that. And then I could project like a game kind of experience. Like you walk through a puddle and stuff like a pool or giant keyboard and we commercialized this with the help of the Australian government, actually, uh, as a research commercialization grant. Uh, they've renamed it a few times, depending on which government's in power. It's either accelerating commercialization or commercializing Australia or something. I don't know. They keep rebranding it. But it effectively funds innovative research into new kind of technologies. Mm-hmm. And we ended up commercializing this. We worked in partnership with Microsoft, and we were the first third party using a piece of technology called the Microsoft Connect, which is like a depth sensor could determine how far and how close you were from an object. So I have a bunch of experience like computer vision research and stuff like that. And that ultimately, uh, we licensed one of the largest education providers in APAC, and they actually now still have that technology that they, you know, we ended up kind of pivoting a little bit into the early education segment because it was really engaging technology and we could do like learning activities and stuff with it. So I have a lot of experience in what machines are good at recognizing and understanding and then kind of turn that to the reverse field, which is security, where we're now trying to stop bots from getting into services and websites and creating accounts and compromising accounts and took the knowledge from building that kind of software to then understanding how do we defeat that kind of software. So preventing mm. those kind of machines from understanding how to recognize and get through things. And that kind of is what the pioneering idea behind Arcos, which you know we've been incredibly successful and, and remain so today with um, our kind of approach there. You know, the key objective of the Arcos product is to basically make the cost for adversaries higher than their profits. Turns out, if you do that, they stop. So that's right. a pretty simple, pretty simple concept, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the kind of a, the approach that we take to the kind of product we build. And you know, as an Aussie. You know, who really better to run a security company? We're all convicts by birth. Who better to explain the criminal mind, right? I moved to the US about five years ago. 
And that was really because all the companies we were working with, you know, some of our early customers were companies like GitHub and Dropbox, you know, Roblox was an early customer, mm-hmm. all very large US businesses with global products. And they're the most lucrative for attackers. They really want to go after large user bases and things like that. So, you know, we're a really good partner and really good fit for those kind of companies. I was on a plane every month moving oh back and forth between Australia and the US. So at a certain point, it was pretty obvious I had to not do that anymore. Right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay. So then let's just maybe give us a state of play in the dealing with fraudsters. I mean, what are the biggest challenges today when it comes to fraud attacks, particularly looking at it through a fintech lens? So we saw a really big shift in the dynamics, I'd say, over the last 12 months that now just really favor criminals, unfortunately. And I think it's it's getting worse, and I think it's going to be really tough in the coming years. So the use cases that an Arcos protects, and kind of our perspective, so we, we work with some of the largest fintechs in the world, obviously the largest ones in the US. We work with a lot of non-fintechs as well, big video game merchants. We work with the big tech companies like Microsoft. Uh, we work with the big travel platforms, the big retailers. So we, we really kind of see it all. And for fintech, you know, the, the target, of course, is money because that's what fintechs have. Um, there's really two areas that we protect that'll be relevant. Creating new accounts. So stopping bad actors abusing your new account experience, opening cards, taking advantage of promotions where you're funding maybe a few dollars into a new account, whatever it may be. So that's obviously one big area. Then the other big one is account takeover. So that's another big area Arcos is used. And account takeover kind of has two flavors of attacks. One is credential stuffing, where they're you know reusing usernames and passwords, because that's unfortunately what you probably do and all of the listeners unfortunately probably do and ideally shouldn't do that. The other component is social engineering. So that's where fraudsters talk or send something and get someone to you know, click a link, whatever it may be, and compromise the account that way. In the context of fintech, compromised accounts can turn into money, right? So they want to compromise an account that has funds in it, or it can turn into things like micro-deposit fraud, where they're funding accounts uh, or creating accounts where the objective is to basically get people to deposit a few cents into their real bank account to verify you own that bank account. It's you meant to type in a few cents. And they do that hundreds of thousands of times. And they make like a few thousand dollars a day from doing these kind of attacks. So there's, there's different kind of attack techniques. And again, of course, it's all for profit. So the adversaries are trying to figure out how do I scale these attacks? How do I make these attacks in a way that's cheaper than uh, my cost? Credit cards, for example, you know, you can completely bypass KYC by just buying a valid identity. You know, it will pass KYC if it's a valid identity. You, can, you know, anywhere from seven to seventeen dollars, you can completely bypass KYC. Mm. Well, not bypass it. You're passing you're it correctly. It. You've passing got a valid it. ID. Like it's actually just you just you know, KYC's job is to validate the ID is legit. It is legit. Unfortunately, that works. But they might be able to make five hundred dollars from passing a KYC process, right? So the the barrier to entry to prevent these kind of criminals has to be quite high. And the thing that's really in the favor of the criminals is knowledge sharing. So there's a lot of communities, both Telegram, Discord, et cetera, where criminals share knowledge on how to make these attacks, who, who are weak targets, what are good techniques, I'm being blocked by this, what should I do? And they're more than happy to share that kind of information. The other problem is a huge rise in what is called cybercrime as a service. So these are kind of kits that are ready to use that can bypass defenses. 
They can do um, proxy site cloning. They basically do everything for the fraudster. The fraudster themselves doesn't really do much other than say, here's my victim I'm going after and here's my bank account. Go fill it up. I'll buy the software. And then there's developers that basically build that software. And this is a huge issue because the cost dynamic is quite different when a bunch of people are pooling their money to one development source versus a fraudster attacking you and trying to figure it out by themselves. Mm-hmm. It's really shifted the balance dramatically, I think, in the favor of um, the adversaries. So, who's the buyer of these, like, you know, hacking as a service? Are these just, because I imagine the big time operations have their own, but are these, are these just someone looking to become a criminal or they're already a criminal and they're looking to expand their business? I mean, what, who buys it? Yeah, these kind of services are just demonstrably better than any of these others that have come before them. Even the big rings are now using the services versus maintaining their own software. Interesting. So it, it's kind of like how SaaS impacted the real world. It's right. kind of doing the same in the cybercrime world. It's like, hey, I'm building this uh, stuff in-house and my cost is this. My effectiveness is this. If I outsource it, my cost goes down and the effectiveness goes up. Why wouldn't I do that? That's kind of what we're starting to see to the point where you know, we used to see dedicated adversaries on a, on a customer by customer basis. Two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, that was kind of what it was. Whereas now we primarily compete with cybercrime as a service platforms. So that's why you said it's getting worse, right? Where the, the fact that the cybercrime as a service are more effective overall. They're more effective. And the communities are bigger and the communities are good at sharing how to use the services. That's kind of the glue that kind of holds it together as well. There's just an incredible amount of knowledge sharing on the fraudster side, which unfortunately we don't really do in our industry. And that is is a huge disadvantage to people trying to prevent criminals. Okay. So then the question, obviously, (laughs) you've teed it up, but how do you stop this cybercrime as a service? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question everyone's trying to figure out, right? Because I right. think um, if you're trying to build defenses in-house, you're going to get really quickly behind how quickly they adapt. Like they adapt within hours, like they can rebuild defense uh, attack tools in hours. Like that's how quick they are. They're very entrepreneurial. They're happy to work any hours, any days. Uh, we do see them take weekends off. It's actually really kind of funny. At Christmas, we saw a huge number of attacks. You know, one customer, they were trying to create like 70 million accounts is what they were attempting to create. Wow. Like it, these are big numbers, right? Just this weekend, they they stopped attacking for like two days and there's just like a massive plummet in attempts. It's kind of interesting to kind of see that because the attacks are not successful, but they're continually trying different things. And we keep seeing like, because we use their services, we kind of, we buy from them, right? Like we, we buy these services to see their effectiveness and we use those to figure out like, how to mitigate it and stuff like that. It's actually kind of fascinating, our research efforts on this sort of stuff. So we're always kind of monitoring to see, are they complaining that their approach against Arcos, is it working or not working? We're not seeing a lot of that from the other companies and, and sites they go against. So I can only imagine the effectiveness is, is really quite high as a standard. So I think it's it's really got to go back to the the... Back to basics, which is you got to build something that inherently is more expensive to attack than it is for frauds to profit from. And that can be a bunch of things. It's not just using an Arcos. You can build the product in a way that is naturally difficult for a fraudster to make money. Withhold refunds, if you like e-commerce or in, in the context of like fintech, withhold approvals in certain scenarios until you kind of vet it out further. Because all of that decreases their motivation and their profit margins. So that's mm-hmm. really kind of the name of the game. It's like, how do you build something that inherently as a product 
isn't good for a fraudster. Unfortunately, due to the nature of how fintech likes to grow, so everyone likes to grow really quickly, they're incentivized to give away quite a lot of money for like promo credits, you right. know, start up and get X dollars. That is just like, as you can imagine, quite attractive to, to criminals to go after. Putting these roadblocks in place to the criminals also can lead to a, a poor user experience. So you can add friction and have very low fraud, or you can have no friction and higher fraud. How do you balance that? What are some of the things that you see and what you best practices with fintechs? It's a true statement. If you turn off sign up, you'll have no fraud. It's great. Uh, you, also have, <laughs> you also get no customer complaints. That's another good benefit. Right. But yeah, you, get, you get some revenue problems typically on that one. But it, it's got to all be risk-based. You've got to do everything on a risk-based model. That's that's kind of been our approach since the beginning. It's you know, low risk. You just let it on in. Like if it looks good, seems good, you know, you probably should take the chance because otherwise you're not going to have much of a business if you don't, right? But then it's got to kind of scale up. And your defenses have to scale up too. The more sure that's a bad thing, like for example, you know, you might typically see a ton of fraud from like one region in the world. Maybe like the US, you see low fraud, but maybe from, I don't know, like Vietnam, you're seeing a high, high degree of fraud coming in. So you can just simply have different rule sets for those two regions, right? Like maybe in the US, you're a little bit more lenient, whereas in Vietnam at the moment, like you see anything that's a bit strange, you, you bump it up to like the next gear, right? Or if you see like a high volume of really bad stuff in an already well-known risky region, you put that on like super high, like maybe manual review kind of level of friction, right? So but wouldn't they be using VPNs to like mask their location? They do. There's, there's ways to kind of detect that sort of stuff. So for example, time zone matching is something we found very interesting. So typically okay. the VPN, the, the time zone of the geo coordinates of the IP address is different to the time zone of the device that's, that's using it. Right. Those things can be masked. I think with sophisticated, like automated attacks and stuff like that, that's typically masked. But with kind of the lower volume manual fraud, where it's just like a person kind of doing it, you'll be able to catch them with those kind of things because they're not typically that sophisticated. If they're using like their own phone, like they can't really easily change the time zone. And, you know, so it, it does differ depending on the type of fraud. But you are correct. I mean, ultimately, any data sent to you from the customer can be spoofed if they want to. Okay, so I want to just talk about credential stuffing, which is sort of a relatively new term to me. And the fact that, you know, you have this, I think you have a guarantee on your website. Good warranty. Yeah, yeah, a warranty about a million dollars credential stuffing warranty. So tell us, what is credential stuffing and what is your warranty and how are you able to provide it? Yeah, so credential stuffing is due to the fact people reuse passwords on multiple products, apps, websites. This isn't a secret. We know people do it. The data's out there. It's very unfortunate, but it is kind of what it is. Once one website gets compromised, which as we all know is happening pretty frequently, there's been more than 11 billion usernames and passwords that have been leaked through compromises. So it's just this ridiculous number of combinations that are quite well known. What attackers do is they take those previously leaked usernames and passwords, and then they go to any high value login page where they want to get into uh, accounts because there's something of value. FinTechs obviously have quite a lot for value in the accounts. They use automated software. So they use a bot. There's tools that do this. There's a tool called OpenBullet. It's an open source piece of software and it will automatically do this attack for you. You just put in the usernames and passwords and it will make the attacks. But it basically tests the combination. So it's looking for valid combinations. So it's just continuously putting in those usernames and passwords. So it's, it's stuffing the credentials into the login page, so to speak. And 
you don't want that because eventually they'll find combinations that are valid and they'll get into the account. So there's a number of strategies to mitigate that. Multi-factor is a big common one in the fintech industry. Mm -hmm. So the reason why you have to do multi-factor is because of credential stuffing. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to do multi-factor. They've, they've made that kind of a really important requirement just because it's so easy to kind of break username and password nowadays. Not all fintechs mandate it because it is really high friction. Multi-factor is a lot of effort to enable. It's a lot of effort to do every time you log in. And it also is more designed for preventing social engineering. There's, there's better defenses to stop credential stuffing that are less friction. Um, obviously, Arcos offers one, but there's a number of others out there as well. That's kind of some of like credential stuffing. In terms of the warranty and, and why we offer that, so in our space, you know, stopping attacks on you know login and sign up and things like that, really when you work with a vendor, it's a best effort. You don't really know if it's going to be able to stop the attack. You don't really know how long it will work for. Like an attacker might build a toolkit that makes your vendors not work after six months. Like it will just bypass your vendors. They'll just be really good at looking human enough so that it basically says they're good enough them in. So that is an arms race that unfortunately does have that kind of consequence. If you don't have the right tools, they'll actually be able to get past it entirely. We have the conviction and confidence our approach, tools, technology, and our um, security operations center team who review things are able to prevent any attack like this, period. And we've, we've been able to uphold that for many years. And basically what we decided was, look, to stand apart in an industry where no one is willing to back or certify that their product will work, uh, we're going to come to market with a warranty. And that warranty effectively states that if the Arcos product at any point in time can't prevent these kind of attacks, not only will we cover up to a million dollars in losses if anything gets past us, but it actually is an opportunity for the customer to reassess do I want to keep working with Arcos. There's no other vendor in this industry that will have a clause like that in their contract. They just don't exist. And we've had this warranty now on market for almost a year. And no one has come to the table with anything even close to it in our space. And that should really make companies think about who they're choosing as partners, I think. Pick the partner that is in it with you to win or pick someone that's best efforts because that's really kind of the table stakes right now in, in the space we're in. I'm actually kind of disappointed to not see anyone else uh, launch something like this in our space. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to talk about Capture. It's been around for a long time and I get annoyed when I have to match the traffic lights or the right. bridge or whatever it is yep. and it's kind of annoying. And you've you come up with a better system. Tell us about Arco's match key and why it is better than Capture. Yeah, let me first describe Capture. So Capture is a completely automated Turing test to tell humans and computers apart. That's what that stands for. So the intent of it is it's a automated test. So a bot creates the test and the test is meant to be able to validate, are you human or a bot? So it's a machine validating your authenticity, which is kind of a strange concept, but that's, that's effectively the intent of what a capture is meant to be. Now, the effectiveness of the capture itself depends on a number of variables. How well is a machine at doing the activity that it's being asked to do? Things like labeling photos, just AI has gotten so good at that now that that really doesn't work right. as a way to test if it's a human or a machine anymore because machines are actually better at labeling data than, than people are in most cases, as long as they have a large enough inventory of examples to work from, which obviously at this point in time on the internet, they absolutely do. Mm -hmm. So kind of those, those kind of tools like select the street signs, like that technology is kind of quite dated, like it's six, seven years old now. Right. If that's your core defense, it doesn't really work anymore. If an attacker wants to get through it, there's plenty of ways to automate past it. Machines have figured that out over the years. Really, to be effectiveness in the game of 
testing for automation with a test, you have to build something that inherently machines are not good at doing, and there's no value in them getting good at doing it. Because if there is, obviously, eventually AI catches up and the tool won't work anymore. So the strategy that we deploy from a challenge standpoint is, is just that. Let's build something that inherently is only designed as a security test and is simply designed to be at that point in time better than what commercial software can recognize from a computer vision standpoint, which is kind of a technical and complex problem, but kind of important to building good software in this space. And the challenge, we really use it only on risky traffic or clearly abusive traffic. You don't want to use friction like that on good users. Obviously, as you said, it's annoying, it's cumbersome, all those kind of things. The alternative, though, is if you don't have something like Capture, is blocking the traffic. So you tell me what's worse, being blocked right. entirely from signing up or solving a small puzzle. That's kind of kind of where we're at right now for defensibility against automation. It hasn't really changed. But the puzzles themselves have gotten worse over time because machines have just gotten better. And you see things like chat GDP, like AI is doing fantastic things nowadays. Right. Like You just can't rely on these older defenses anymore. So we kind of built this new one. So what it does is it uses... Uh, two 3D models, and we generate a question, and then we uh, we generate a, a visual puzzle dynamically. And the objective, again, is to build something that's really expensive for adversaries to write software that can recognize how to get through it. And this new match key technology, you matching a key image, very creative naming, is really probably the best that we've ever designed and by far better than anything that we've seen before in the capture history on the internet so far to date in that it really excels in the usability side. So it's taken our knowledge of the last seven years of building defenses in this space around what, what kind of problems are really actually expensive and difficult for adversaries versus not just what's difficult for AI, because that's that question's changed almost on a monthly basis in the last 12 months or so, right? And use that knowledge to build this new technology. And it really is a reset for adversaries targeting Arcos because it's just this complete game-changing approach on how they have to think about how to attack us, which they've not had to deal with. Like it's it's basically kind of like a brand new category shift in this space with a company that's been doing this for seven years, which is quite unusual. It's rare you see companies got the kind of experience we do build something that's just such a paradigm shift in the security space. It's a huge advantage for our customers to kind of have that complete refresh, I would say, as a defense kind of like what it might be if you bring in a new tool it's going to work really well when you first bring it in because no one knows how to deal with it and right. that's kind of how you have to think about it in the security space it's like you have to continually innovate and build new technology like this otherwise your platform gets tired and the attackers figure out how to get through it and then you know you go back to the best best efforts and they're just not really good enough if attackers kind of know how to get through your stuff right so i imagine though that eventually these cybercrime as a service people will will figure out a way. They'll roll it out in their next version of their software. Yep. And so obviously you've got to be thinking the next thing, right? It's an arms race, that's correct. And the objective is simply make their businesses not profit worthy. So, you know, when we roll out this kind of defense, because we're in their communities, we're reading what their users say, we're reading their right. reviews. The reviews become incredibly negative when their service stops functioning. And when the reviews become negative, they stop using the service and then they move on to a new service. And then suddenly right. that business goes away. And we've seen that time and time again. I can tell you that we've squashed many criminal enterprises and we have a long list of all the ones we've dealt with and, and all the ones we've demolished over the years, both from being part of their communities through to just doing our job on a day-to-day -day basis. And really the goal is simply to get to the point where their product is so unreliable and unusable 
that the community stops buying from them and then suddenly they go somewhere else and then, you know, rinse and repeat. So we're right. in the business of killing criminal businesses, it feels like. That's kind of what the team does. So then what's the life cycle for something like Match Key? Are you, are you looking at this like this is going to last a year, two years? I and mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, the really cool thing about how we built the technology is it's designed to be dynamic. So it's, it's a platform. It's not just a, a single challenge. So you okay. can do many things with that challenge format. So the format is designed to last quite a long time. And puzzles that we haven't even thought of yet will fit into that existing format. That's really kind of the big innovation with how we build challenges at Arcos is it's, it's all dynamic and without even needing engineering resources, we can change it completely. The question, the phrasing, the type of context, everything. And that allows us, you know, we have like 3D artists and stuff like that that are building defenses. It's very strange. It's like this weird game design company doing security <laughs> stuff. But um, it really lets us kind of innovate quite quickly, building new defenses and stuff like that. And you know, we don't even know the limits of that technology just yet. Because it's it's we innovate based on what the attackers do and we learn as the attackers come after us. And that's really kind of the game we play. It's like really hard to think about what we should build next until we see what attackers try and do. So that's really kind of an important part of this. You couldn't come into this landscape and try and build a solution completely greenfield with no expertise because it wouldn't work very well. Like that's kind of the fascinating thing about the space we're in is like the expertise we've built and what we've learned really is what lets us build and think and innovate better than everyone else that's that's trying to do similar things. Right. So when you look sort of towards the future then, you know, you said you're in these Discord forums and what have you, they're all sharing information. Like, how are you preparing for the attacks that are going to happen in 2024? How do you kind of help your clients, you know, prepare for the next wave? Yeah, the strategy we have, which it's consistent and really is how we do things. Again, it's about raising the adversarial cost and effort. So we're building uh, new technology, which lets us get additional data points, different signals, things that are really expensive for fraudsters to spoof that let us continue to raise that cost bar. Like that's a very important part of the strategy. That's really all you can do. All you really can do is just ultimately make it not worth their while. If you do that, they do stop. And we've seen that numerous times as well. But that is the key focus from a product roadmap standpoint. You know, we launched this new match key technology in the last month. We have a new product we're launching early in Q1 around different kind of reputation sources from data we look at. Uh, we launched a new phishing defense last year, which lets us look at sites that are set up to uh, proxy your site, so bypass multi-factor and all this kind of stuff. So we're always kind of looking at what is the new techniques adversaries are doing, trying to lower the cost on their side to raise their profit margin. How do we how do, we do the reverse of that? How do we reset that balance back in the favor of the fintech or the merchant or whoever we might be working with to ultimately make their service more protected? The other component is we we work with the customers pretty closely. It's not just his tech, good luck. We have a, a managed service team that are constantly adapting and reviewing and, and tuning things as needed, but also providing insights and working with the customer in that, you know, if you're launching a promo and it just so happens to be so lucrative that you really can't defend it because they're, they're willing to basically do whatever it takes to get through it, you might want to rethink kind of how a promo is structured and stuff like that too. So even some guidance around you know, those kind of things we help our customers with because it is not really something people think about when they kind of, you know, think about growing a business. They don't really think about what someone's going to do to abuse it and take advantage of them, which there's plenty of people, unfortunately, out there that are looking to do just that. Right, right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Kevin. So really interesting. I mean, I, 
this industry of fighting fraudsters, I don't think is ever going to go away. You're, uh, there'll be bad actors in 50 years' time trying to get through the security systems. So it's great work you're doing. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, great. Thanks, Peter, for having me. If you like the show, please go ahead and give it a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And be sure to tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.